Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to continue in the story of Elijah, I'm jumping right into the next chapter. Um, last week, Elijah had this big ministry moment. He defeated the prophets of Baal. He won the day. Um, but, but now we're going to see him kind of come down off the mountain figuratively and literally and get in kind of a bad place um, for him. So 1 Kings 19. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 8 to start. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, Go, or I'm sorry, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked up, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. We're going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to take it in chunks as we work through this passage. Um, Elijah has just had the greatest moment in his ministry. He faced down those prophets. He won the battle. He slaughtered all the prophets. Baal has lost. And Yahweh is the winner. The God of Israel is the only God, and the people have surrendered to him. Ahab, the king, goes, finds Jezebel, um, and, and, and tells her what has happened. And she is furious. She doesn't repent. She is furious. She isn't convinced of God's power. She's at, Jezebel and Ahab are kind of the two most wicked characters in this time in the story of the Bible. They're terrible, and they are so far um, uh, running from God that, that, that there comes a point at which someone is so consumed by their sin and their heart is hardened against God. We see that with Pharaoh. 
um, in the Exodus story. Um, Pharaoh, we see several times in his story, he hardens his heart toward God. He does that several times. Finally, he gets to a point where it starts saying, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Like there comes a point that Pharaoh hardens his heart so much that God starts doing it for him. And, and that's where Jezebel and Ahab are at, specifically Jezebel. Jezebel sends a letter to Elijah. She threatens him. Why send a letter? She, says, she sends him a letter and says, hey, the way you killed all those prophets of, a, of, of Baal, uh, uh, I will do the same to you. Why send a letter? Why not just send soldiers and chop his head off? She's got that power. Well, it's a cunning strategy. If Elijah flees after this incredible moment up on, on, on Carmel, if he um, flees and runs away, it makes God's act look less credible. She can easily chalk it up, oh, he just did a magic trick. He was one of those magicians. There wasn't anything special about what he did. So Elijah goes on the run. He was afraid. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 18, when Elijah comes to face Ahab, he runs into Obadiah. Obadiah is scared to death of Ahab, and Elijah's at that point now. He's scared. He rises and runs for his life. We see that um, in verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. What's missing there? Well, look back in your Bible at chapter 17. Look at chapter 17, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherith. So Elijah gets up and goes. Look down at 17.8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, said, go show yourself to Ahab. So Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab. What's missing here? God doesn't tell him to leave. He doesn't tell him to leave where he's at. Every movement that Elijah has made in the story up to now, he's done at the word of God. He doesn't do that here. He goes on his own word. He goes and runs for it. He goes to Beersheba, verse 3. Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Remember, I've told you um, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Israel. Um, they're, they're, they're technically the same nation, but, but they're, not, they're, they're operating on their own jurisdiction. The southern kingdom has some good um, kings. It's, it's Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom. All bad kings. Elijah's been doing his ministry in, northern, in the northern kingdom where Ahab rules. He makes a run for it to Beersheba in Judah, where Ahab and Jezebel have no jurisdiction. He's safe here. He's safe in Judah. They're not going to be able to get him here. He's under Judah jurisdiction. Elijah has sought out safety. But remember how much God has kept him safe up to now. He protected him for three and a half years as the world he lived in hated him because of the drought. He commanded ravens to feed him. He provided food for him, the widow and her son, every day. He, he, he won the battle at the, uh, at, on Carmel against the prophets of Baal. But finally, Elijah cracks. 
He stops trusting the Lord's protection and runs for it. He looks for safety in the world rather than safety from, for, for, in God. Safety. Something we all want, isn't it? We all want to be safe. Of course, we should have safety. Before all this pandemic happened, we were talking a lot about um, getting security together here at the church. We're, we're still going to work on that. We, it's completely fine to have security guards, security teams, police. It's okay to conceal carry a gun. Um, but often, how, how, how often do you serve the Lord because, do you um, not serve the Lord because it would be risky? How often do you do that? How often do you say, Lord, I can't serve you because it, would, it wouldn't be safe? Are there areas of the world or even this county where you refuse to go serve the Lord for your personal safety? You know, every town has, a, has an area that across the railroad tracks that you don't go. Um, it, it's, it's an area of town that it's just, it's just assumed I, I shouldn't go there. Do you have one of those here in Tifton that you, um, are, that, that you don't go to? You have one of those in Chula? You, 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 you won't go there? Do we have those where we seek personal safety? We'll, we'll serve the Lord in the places where we know we're going to be okay. We won't go where um, we're, we're going to be in danger. Don't you understand your life is in His hands? You cannot die until it's time. There is, the scriptures say there's a day appointed for you one day when you will die. That day is set for you. You cannot die until that day gets here. When that day comes, you can't stop it, no matter how safe you play it. Now, obviously, you, you can fulfill that day by being stupid, but your life is in the Lord's hands. Would you be willing to risk a little bit for Christ? Would you be willing to risk it all for Christ? Parents and grandparents, would you be willing to free your kids and your grandkids up to risk it all for Christ? Is the Lord calling one of your kids or grandkids overseas to serve Christ on the mission field? You understand that they're not going to be safe. Fr frankly, um, n nobody who serves the Lord is safe. You know, despite, um, despite how safe our church can feel, we're not safe when we meet here. We're meeting here as an embassy of the kingdom of God in a world that is not for Him. We are in danger. We've got to trust the Lord instead of playing it safe all the time. We've got to be willing to risk for Him. Elijah gets to where he's going. He sits down under a tree and he says, Lord, just kill me. I've done what I need to do. Just take my life. Get me out of here. It's much like Jonah does, if you know the story of Jonah, but there's going to be a different end. Jonah um, is mad that God saved Nineveh. He says, I, I don't want to live. Just kill me. I knew you were going to save these pagan people. Just kill me. Um, Elijah is going to actually learn his lesson and go and do what he's supposed to do. He falls asleep and he's woken up by an angel. And when he was woken up, there's a cake and there's water there for him to eat. When is the last time Elijah saw these things? Well, you remember the widow. He 
um, provided flour for her to make cakes of bread. You remember that? It's like God saying, hey, remember how I took care of you for three and a half years? I'm going to keep doing that. So why are you running? Elijah eats and his, um, he, he, he continues his journey. He spends 40 days, verse 8, he spends 40 days and 40 nights um, journeying in the wilderness until he gets to Mount Horeb. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Mount Horeb, you know it as another name. It's Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain. They just have different, it, there's just two names for it. Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Look, and he, he spends 40 days to get there. You, you, you hear the echoes of the Exodus? Um, 40 years in the wilderness, Mount Sinai. You hear that? Elijah is in many ways doing exactly what Israel did in the Exodus. Perhaps he's retreating here, trying to figure out what to do next. He's going back to what his people knows, going back to the start to figure out where he's going to go from there. And let's find out where he goes. Look at the next part of the passage. I'm going to read verses 9 through 18. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke it to pieces, the, broke it in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Your translation might say a still small voice. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out, stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah gets in a cave there when he gets to Mount Horeb, and he sits down, and the Lord says, What are you doing here, Elijah? I didn't tell you to come here. What are you doing here? God doesn't respond to Elijah the way a lot of us would if we were God. Um, the, way a lot of, uh, the way a lot of people maybe respond to their kids. Um, it, the, Adrian and I have been having to go to the pregnancy, the, the women doctor to have the 
appointments. I haven't went since the pandemic and everything, but, but a couple months ago I was there and uh, we were walking in the door and um, there was this mother, I guess mother-to-be, entering the place and she was bringing her three-year-old girl with her and I guess she was pregnant as well and she's bringing the kid inside and the kid's not coming and she's like, if you don't get inside, I'm going to beat your butt. And I'm just standing there like 20 feet away like, what's up? That, that's how a lot of parents treat their kids. Hopefully none of you and hopefully not myself when I have a child. If the way you always respond to your kids is, if you don't stop, I'm gonna beat your butt, you probably need to work on your temper. I, f I fear your kids may grow up and rebel. R right now, they're only obeying so you won't beat their butt. Not because they actually want to do what is right. It's more like a slave owner and a slave than a parent and their child. Of course, there are times you discipline your children, absolutely, I'm not saying you don't, but if you don't show them grace and love and instruct them on why what they're doing is wrong, they're never gonna understand. They're not doing wrong just because they're annoying you. They're doing, they're, they're, they're doing wrong because there's wrong ways to live. And if the only thing they see that is wrong with what they're doing is that it annoys you, then when they're out of your house, they're gonna keep doing those things just you won't be there to yell at them. But honestly, that may show your view of God. That, that may be how you assume God relates to his people. That anytime we do wrong, God just wants to pull off his belt like our uh, mean uncle and just beat the fire out of us. But the overwhelming picture of God in the Bible is that those who are his, he re redeemed from their sins, he lovingly woos back. He doesn't beat them around until they get in line. He woos them back. He's not harsh like your uncle who's always pulling off his belt. God, God doesn't speak to Elijah like the way some people speak to their children. He just says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, Verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed the prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and they're seeking to kill me. That's what he says. He doesn't really answer God's question, what are you doing here? He just spouts off of why he's the good guy, right? In essence, what's he say? Elijah, what are you doing here? Nothing! I'm doing nothing. That's what I'm doing. Essentially, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm alone. I'm the only person still faithful to God in this entire nation, God. What's wrong? He's alone. When you go it alone, you often forget the truth. That's why you need to come to church weekly. That's why church on the internet, like we're doing right now during a quarantine, it can never replace actually coming to church. If you try to live the Christian life alone, you will neglect it and you will forget the truth of what God says. It will happen. Uh, Elijah says, I'm the only one left. No, you're not. 
Forty days ago, you talked to Obadiah, who had um, hidden a hundred prophets from Jezebel. Um, so you have Obadiah, you have a hundred prophets. Um, all of them are still alive. You're not the only guy, but he's been away for 40 days by himself, like a lot of us have right now, and he's forgotten reality. So God speaks to him. He tells him the truth. God tells him in verse um, 11, Go outside. Stand on the mountain. Elijah doesn't do it right away, but see, the word of the Lord comes to him again. It's come to him all throughout the story. It comes to him again. He doesn't do it immediately, but um, he tells him, go outside. And God passes by. Again, Exodus. Moses is on the mountain. He says, God, can I see you? And God passes by and shows him the backside of himself because you can't see the front side of God. It would kill you. God shows him great signs. So he um, blows a wind through and it shakes the mountain. It's something like the um, storm that happened on Thursday. A wind blows through, right? Um, but God is not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake. Rattles the mountains. But God's not in the earthquake. Then there's a fire. But God's not in the fire. Those aren't where he speaks. Uh, it's, it's this thing of, that's what happened in Exodus. God showed signs like that. Um, but God's not in any of them this time. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, God's not speaking in them. However, he did cause them. He's saying, I'm more powerful than Jezebel. Look at my power. And then God speaks. How? Verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. He says, Elijah, Elijah, come outside. I told you to come outside. Come outside. And Elijah gets up and goes outside. It takes Elijah a minute to be wooed back. It takes him a second to get it. You know what we learn from this is we often want and expect God to act in big things and rarely listen to the small. We want God to speak in the big, awesome ways, but we don't listen in the ordinary things of life like a whisper. Often God whispers to us. We want God to do big explosions. We want fireworks. We want, you know, something written in the clouds for God to tell us what, what he needs us, what he wants us to do. But often God whispers. God often works in, in the quiet. You think of the birth of Jesus. That was quiet. Only a few people knew about it. You think of the parable of the sower that Jesus tells. The kingdom of God is like a seed gets planted in the ground and it grows. Planting a seed is a quiet thing. The seed setting in the ground, it's quiet, but it produces a vineyard eventually. When we expect God to only speak in the big things, we won't look for him in the ordinary and the quiet. That this might be how some of us view church, right? 
We, we live in a world of big Christian conferences. I love them. They're great. A couple weeks ago, I was supposed to be in Kentucky at a conference called Together for the Gospel. We ended up having to move that to online. It's a pastor's conference every other year. Um, it's an incredible thing. Um, 12,000 to 15,000 pastors all gathered in a sports arena. And for worship, there's one guy playing a piano and just all of us singing hymns together. It's incredible. We have a world of very talented, very good Christian musicians. A world where some churches have the resources to make big, awesome shows out of their service. I'm not down on any of those people. But most churches are like ours. A small congregation meeting in a room like this weekly and using what resources they have to worship the Lord. We don't necessarily have the resources for a 20-person praise team. But the church in the New Testament was a lot more like ours than that church that has the big show. It was a lot more of just a family of believers meeting together, often in houses. They didn't have sanctuaries like we do. It shows, how, uh, it shows our misunderstanding of how God speaks, doesn't it? People will often leave a church like ours to go to a church in town with the best music or with the best show on Sunday morning. Churches all around the world are thriving without needing a giant music ministry or a big media team. All those things are great if you can have them, but we don't have to have them to worship. People will often leave a church like ours to go to a church with better music. They'll say, I can just worship there better than I can worship at Mount Zion. Um, it comes to a wrong understanding of what church is, that it's about the music. We come for the music and we endure the preaching. That is, we think God speaks in the churches with the best music. The louder the music, the better it's performed, the more God speaks. When, when you have a, um, a really good music Sunday, people will often say, oh man, God showed up today. Even though you, you just need to understand, God lives in you in the Holy Spirit. So how much you're willing to worship will determine how much you feel that ooey gooey God showing up thing, right? Some people come to church for the music and they tolerate the sermon afterwards. You've got it backwards, friend. I'm not saying that to puff myself up. I'm, a, I'm an average preacher compared to so many great preachers in the world. The, the music, though, is meant to prepare your heart for the sermon, for God's word to be preached. God has been saving and building his church through preaching since the beginning of time, not through music. Jesus came as a preacher, not as a musician. Caleb and I meet every month to plan the month's worship services, and we plan it all centered around the sermon. The, the songs that we pick go with the sermon. The scripture I'm going to read and pray through goes with the sermon. That's why I put so much work into my sermons, because I believe God uses them to save people and build the church. I spend some five to ten hours a week per sermon that I write and preach. God speaks often not through big shows. He always speaks through a man opening the, the, this, this book and proclaiming what it says. It doesn't often look like anything special, but it's how God speaks. What the preacher says comes 
to you and the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it in your heart. It comes from the Bible, through the mouth of the preacher, transmitted by the Holy Spirit straight to your heart to work. That's how the preaching works. We often want God to speak to us in big, magnificent ways like fireworks and earthquakes and wind, but he often speaks in whispers. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? At the whisper, Elijah finally comes outside and God asks him again, what are you doing here? And Elijah answers the exact same answer. I've been faithful to God. None of those people in Israel have. I'm the only one left. And God says, okay, let me tell you what you're going to do. He says, go down. And, and then we read, and it's just a bunch of weird Bible names. Like, that doesn't sound very, very instructional. Go down and anoint this guy king and anoint this guy king and anoint Elisha to take your place when you're gone. That, that's pretty lame. You've just got a bunch of weird Bible names. How is that going to help me right now? Well, it, it, honestly, it, it doesn't help Elijah very much. You read the rest of First and Second Kings. Um, he's going to anoint Haziel um, to be king of um, Damascus. No, Haziel the king of Syria, which I think is in Damascus. Um, he's going to anoint Haziel. Haziel, after Elijah is gone, Elisha is going to be the prophet in his place. We're going to see that happen when we finish this series in 2 Kings 2. Um, then we get to 2 Kings 8 through 10. Elijah's far gone at this point. Haziel, king of Syria, is going to come up and make war against Israel, Ahab's descendants. After that's over, Jehu is going to come and clean house and kill Jezebel. And all of this is going to happen after Elijah is gone. That's sometimes how God works. Are you willing to serve God if it means all the fruit of your labor will come after you're gone? It's one of the hardest things about being a pastor. It's praying for the growth uh, uh, of the church, praying that people would come to know Jesus, praying that people would, would grow in their faith and start spreading the gospel out to their neighbors, and then knowing that it might happen at the church down the street, or it might not happen until you're gone. It, it may not happen when you're here. You may not get to see it. Elijah isn't going to see Jezebel get defeated. He's going to be gone. He's got to pave the way for somebody else to be able to make it happen. And that's what it does. Look at the final three verses of the chapter, verses 19 through 21. First Kings, interestingly enough, skips over the anointing of the two kings, and it goes straight to Elisha. Verse 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, took the yoke of his oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. 
It skips anointing the kings. It goes straight to him anointing Elisha because the emphasis of the book is going to be on Elisha. The emphasis of 2 Kings is going to be on Elisha. Elijah comes up and puts his cloak on top of him, signifying he's taken this kid to train him. He's going to take an active step in raising this kid to be a worker. He's going to be like an apprentice. He's going to train him up to continue this ministry when Elijah is gone. That's what the still small voice was about. Go find somebody to replace you. Think about what you do here at the church. Be it something as big as teaching a Sunday school class or something as small as washing the dishes at a potluck. Who are you actively seeking to raise up to take your place when you're gone? Who are you, who younger than you are you training up to take your place when you're gone? That's what the Great Commission is about. Go make disciples. Train them up to carry the church on after you're gone. It's an acknowledgement that I'm not going to be here forever and someone needs to continue on the work of the gospel after I'm gone. My mom's family is, the, the last name is Gibson, and um, they have um, a family reunion every so many years. Um, I don't think they've had one in a while. I haven't been to one since about 2014, 2015. Um, and I always go to these family reunions, and most of the family members there I haven't met, or I've met them, but I don't remember them. I see them, you know, once every three or four years at a family reunion, so their name doesn't stick too well with me. Um, and, and I'm just going to be honest, my generation goes for the free food. That's it. Like, we don't know most of these people. And most of us haven't gotten to know those people. So what's going to happen when, when my granddad's generation is gone and when my mom's generation is gone? Those family reunions are not going to continue. I'm just being honest. We're not, we're, we're not, in, my generation isn't invested enough in them to carry them on. Once, the, the, once they're gone, those family reunions will stop. So, so think about what you do here at the church. Let me ask you, if you dropped dead this afternoon, who would love what you do enough and know how it all works to carry it on? Who in our church, if you were to drop dead this afternoon, who in our church would have the vision to love what you do enough to carry it on and know the ins and outs of how it works in order to do that? Is there somebody? Because if there isn't someone, you can bet that the thing you do is going to die away. You can bet that the thing you do is going to die away. Someone may take it up for a couple of years to honor you, but if they haven't caught the vision like you, you can bet it's not going to last. It is foolish of us to think the next generation is just going to jump in and pick up where we left off just because it was important to us. We must raise up the next generation to take all over when we're gone. We must understand there are, they're going to do some things different than we did it. And that's okay. Because you do it a little different than the people before you did. They're going to value some things that we value. And they're going to do away with some of the things that we love. And that's okay. 
Elisha is going to have a double anointing of uh, Elijah. That's what the scriptures later say. Elisha is going to get a double anointing of Elijah. He's going to do double. I think Elijah does seven miracles throughout the book. Elisha is going to do 14 He's going to have a quite different ministry than Elijah. Who are you raising up to take your place? Who are you raising up to carry this church on after you? What, what lost people are you reaching with the gospel to help build this church? Maybe, let's put it in a direct way. Mount Zion Baptist Church began in May of 1890. So next month will be our 130 year anniversary. Let me ask you, will, will the church still be here in, 20, in May of 2090 when we celebrate our 200th anniversary? If I'm alive, I'll be 98 years old in 2090. Most of us will be with Jesus by then. Mary Charles Griffin will be in her 70s at that point. If she still lives in Chula, let me ask you, is she going to have a Mount Zion to go to? Or is she going to have to go to another church? Uh, understand, if we don't reach people with the gospel, if we don't reach the lost with the gospel, and if we don't train up the next generation, it, it, th this church will be just like my family reunions. That they'll, they'll do really well with the older generation and my generation, but after we're gone, it'll dismember. It'll be gone. Maybe you say, I'll be in, I'll be in heaven. I, don't, I won't care. I'll be in glory. But Jesus left you the command to make disciples. That's to build the church, to reach the lost, baptize them, and, and then teach them all things that he commanded so they can carry the church on into the future. Jesus guarantees the church worldwide will never die. He does not guarantee that individual congregations will not die. Do you really want to get to heaven and tell Jesus, hey, I didn't care that you left that command, but I'm in glory now. Do you really want that? You really want that to be your trophy for all eternity, that you didn't care about what Jesus told us to do? We must reach the lost. We must disciple those who are saved. We must train up the next generation. Elijah's ministry is going to carry on because he's going to train up Elisha. Moses' ministry carried on because he trained up Joshua. Paul's ministry carried on because he trained up Timothy. My BCM campus minister, Tommy Johnson's ministry, carries on because he trained me. The question is, am I going to do the same? And the question for all of us is, are we going to do the same? Or will we be the last generation of Mount Zion Baptist Church? That's the question every church has to constantly ask itself. Every church is one generation away from extinction. I pray that's not us. Let's pray together. Father, I love the church, and Jesus does too. And actually, let me change that around. Jesus loves the church, and I do too. 
And Lord, there's so many people watching this right now who I know love the church. They, they love the church. Lord, we want Mount Zion Baptist Church to continue on until Jesus returns. Lord, we want so many churches in this area to continue on until Jesus returns. I want First Baptist Chula and Northside and Crossview and Victory and First Baptist Tai Tai and so many others around the community, Lord. I want them to continue on until Jesus returns. I pray for them right now as they're having online worship. And I pray that they would thrive. Father, but, but all these churches, everyone that I've just named, and, and all the others, they are only one generation away from extinction, just like we are. Lord, the, the whisper that you whispered to Elijah was, go find Elisha to take your place, because you're not going to be here forever. And Lord, I pray that, that would, I pray that you'd whisper that to us today. I pray that we actively seek to train up the next generation to love the church, to reach the lost, and to worship Christ. Because they will not learn it naturally. None of us learned it naturally. We have to learn it spiritually. By the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, and by the teaching of the older generation to the younger. We, we must be a church who takes what we learn from the generation before us and passes it on to faithful men who will teach others also. And I pray that we will be that church, especially when we're back from quarantine. In Jesus' name, amen.